You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist and family nurse practitioner. And first, I want to say I hope everyone's doing well. I want to thank everyone so much for the wonderful comments, the emails. I really, really appreciate it. I'm so glad that you guys are excited about the podcast. I'm excited about it. And thanks for sharing too. So, but if you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe, like, rate, review. I really appreciate that. Sharing is caring. We know about that. So make sure to share the podcast. And um, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in today's topic. So um, as many of you guys know, I am a health correspondent for NBC4 Los Angeles. And there's been so much talk about vaccines, booster vaccines. Can we mix and match you know, vaccines for children 5 to 11, when's that coming? And are they doing work for those who are younger? Like so many questions. And I think one of the most consistent questions that's asked, if I don't already talk about it is, but what does the data say? What does the research say? How many people participated in the research? And all kinds of questions, because everyone wants, wants to know, you know, is this safe? Should we be doing this? And, you know, they have so many questions about research. But the interesting thing is, People want research because it helps guide our decisions, right? We want to make sure things are safe. It's our practice is evidence-based. But on the flip side of that, not many people want to participate in research. And that's where we kind of get stuck. We want all this data, but we need someone to participate so we can get the information we need to make these choices and decisions. And so um, our guest today is someone who's really going to help us understand this. Not only is she a researcher, but she's participated in the COVID-19 vaccine research herself. So uh, please welcome Dr. Kristen Choi. She is a psychiatric nurse and health services researcher who is an assistant professor of nursing and public health at UCLA. Dr. Choi studies health services and policy approaches to promoting mental health among children and adolescents. Her research projects include studies on adverse childhood experiences, developmental disabilities, and the intersection of homelessness and mental illness. As both a clinician and a scientist, Dr. Choi maintains a clinical practice as a registered nurse at a safety net psychiatric hospital in downtown Los Angeles. And get this, she was the first and only nurse included in the U.S. Forbes 30 Under 30 healthcare list in 2020 and recently was inducted as a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Choi. Hi, Alice. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have you for a variety of reasons. But first, what I kind of want to just lead with is because I read an article about, I mean, you're a nurse, you're very familiar with research and the importance of it, and you're a researcher. But not only in this were you just looking at research and looking at it to make your evidence-based practice work, but you actually participated in some research. And I teed it up in the beginning. You actually participated in the COVID-19 vaccine research. Can you yes. tell us, uh, that's that's really exciting. Um, and I'm sure lots of people have questions about it because you know we hear like, oh, this, the vaccine, the benefits outweigh the risk. It's based on this research. And people are kind of like, well, who is in the research? Where did this come from? Because you know, we, we don't often look at that part or many of us don't participate, I'll be honest, but you were actually in it. So can you tell us a little bit about how did you learn to about the opportunity to be a participant and what, dare I say, made you brave enough to participate <laughs> in it? Yeah, that's, I mean, it is what it is. 
No, I, I think it's a good question. And I, I honestly, I got that one quite a lot from my family and friends. When I told them I was signing up for the trial, this was back last year when we had never heard of mRNA vaccines for most of us. Uh, they were like, what? This is this is crazy. So yeah, ha- happy to speak to that. You know, I think that, uh, you know, when you were reading my bio, obviously most of the work that I've done so far has been in the mental health space. But when the COVID-19 pandemic started back in 2020, it was really clear that we needed nurses to step up in in a lot of different ways. And so that no matter what your practice area is, whether you're doing, you know, mental health or hospital work or public health or research, I think that nurses really had a big role to play in uh, educating the public, of course, responding to the pandemic, and then also in the research. And, you know, I do my own research studies, of course, as a professor at UCLA, but I had never really been in a study myself and, uh, you know, had never been on that other side of research. I, uh, last summer, actually got an Instagram ad about the Pfizer trial. I didn't have, like, any insider info or anything as a researcher. I just got an ad like everyone else. And I clicked on it. I just wanted to kind of see how they were recruiting people and, and what it looked like. And when I started reading about the study and started thinking about it, I just thought, you know, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to step up as a nurse, to be in this trial and be a part of the science. So I signed up. I got my first dose last summer. So that was August of 2020. And um, the Pfizer study, as well as all the other vaccine studies, is what we call a double-blind randomized controlled trial. What that means is for people in the study, they gave me an injection, but I was blinded. I didn't know whether I got the actual vaccine or whether I got a placebo. And that blinding is really important because uh, it, we may change our behavior. Like if I had known that I got the real vaccine, maybe I would have taken things, uh, been a little bit less careful or cautious. And so it's really important that people are blinded so that they don't change their behavior. Uh, I got the vaccine, you know, didn't know what I got. And then I came back about three weeks later for the second dose. After that second dose, I had kind of an inadvertent unblinding because I had a very strong reaction to it. I had a lot of side effects after the vaccine, as we know a lot of people do. That kind of gave me a signal that I probably got the real vaccine, Uh, and it turned out that I did. I was unblinded back in December and found out that I did indeed get the vaccine. But after I um, had that strong reaction to the second dose, I wrote an article about my experience in the trial for two reasons. One is that I really wanted to make sure that uh, doctors and nurses were prepared to help have conversations with people about vaccines and what to expect for side effects. I had never had side effects from a vaccine quite like this, even though they are normal. I just have never had them before. Uh, Things like fever and muscle aches and chills, all those things. But the other reason is that, you know, I think that it really gave me interesting insight as a researcher to be on the other side of research. We have a long history in research of us, the researchers, treating people who are in our studies as uh, disposable in some ways. We often want to use people to get data and answer a question, but we don't think about the human side of what it means to be in a study and maybe to be really, really depending on getting that treatment. You know, in my case, I was a nurse. I had had a couple of exposures to COVID and I felt really worried about getting sick or bringing it home to my family. And so to me, I thought, wow, I'd really like to get the real vaccine in this trial, but it was hard to not know whether I did or not. And that really gave me so much empathy for patients when I thought about what it must be like to have a chronic disease or something like cancer or a rare disease and to be relying on these clinical trials, hoping for treatment, but feeling that blinding, it's it's really a, a difficult position to be in. And I experienced that, of course, to a really, really small degree compared to what some patients experience. So it also gave me a lot more empathy for participants in research and made me think a lot more about how I approach my own science now. Wow. That's really interesting. And if I could just back up a little bit, you saw something on Instagram. So you were just kind of like peeking <laughs> in, like, let me just see what they're talking about here. 
and then just found yourself intrigued and wanting to participate. I mean, you have your researchers, so you know the importance of this, but also keeping yourself safe. Now, in this process, like how much, if you were just a lay person, if you weren't a nurse, if you weren't a researcher and you got this ad, do you think you would have done the same thing? Like what, because I didn't get, I didn't see this. Because I, I probably would have done the same thing that you did, but I didn't, yeah. for whatever reason, I don't know, Instagram algorithms, right? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get to see that because I've always wondered, you know, where do they get so many people participating? Because, you know, one of the major complaints with this vaccine, oh, is it happened too quickly? And what people don't understand is that when it came to these studies, you had so many people wanting to participate, they didn't have to stretch that time out to look for participants. So if you weren't a nurse, if you weren't a researcher and you saw this ad, I mean, can you walk me through kind of what it looked like or what did it tell you? And the ad was kind of the typical ads that we see on Instagram, a nice kind of flashy infographic about, you know, learning about COVID vaccines and participating in research. They had a very nice website that walked you through a screening to, uh, to try to see if you were eligible for the study. You know, I think that I was really drawn to the study because I was a nurse and because I knew that I was taking more risk, uh, you know, again, potentially exposing myself and people I knew to COVID in my work. And so to me, that seemed really compelling to want to potentially have a chance to get the vaccine to protect people around me. But, you know, I think for other people uh, who might not be a nurse and see an ad like that, there's a lot of factors that we have to be aware of. So in clinical research, there's a really long history of a lot of exclusion of certain groups of people in research. A lot of the research that we've had for a lot of years has been on white men. That was just the default for a long time. And a lot of research, we do not have good studies of women, we do not have good studies of people of color, and we don't have good studies of children. Those groups tend to really be excluded in research. Over time, a lot of our big research funding agencies have tried to change that by requiring people to put a lot more effort into recruiting diverse samples to make sure that what we learn is going to apply to all kinds of people and not just to be learned on white men, because we know that that's not going to be generalizable to all the rest of us. And that was true for the COVID vaccine trials as well. They really wanted to make sure to recruit a diverse uh, pool so that we knew how these vaccines would look for other people. And one of the real challenges that I know was faced in all of the trials was getting people of color into the trials. There tends to just be more people who are white that are willing to volunteer for these trials. They also skew a bit you know, more educated, a bit older, but the researchers knew this and really wanted to make an effort to reach out to people that might not historically be in trials, which maybe is why they were doing things like advertising on Instagram. But I think that representation really, really matters because as we've seen the vaccines roll out, we know that there have been some really persistent disparities, especially by race and ethnicity, and who is getting the vaccine. And it really, really is important that, you know, when I'm talking to people about the vaccine, that I can point back to that research and say, look, people like you who are your age, you know, your race, your gender, people like you were in the study and they were okay. And we have data that this vaccine is okay for people like you. It makes a big difference. And so it's something that I, I also think about now in my research, you know, how can I make sure that the work that we're doing is really representative of people and isn't just biased to the kinds of volunteers that we usually get for research. Exactly. And so that's why I was curious to know. I mean, Instagram is, you know, that's that's a really great way to reach people, especially younger, younger people. People have different demographics. And, you yeah. know, you said it led to a website. So I'm just wondering, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And I don't know if you if you were looking at things as a researcher, as you were doing this, like critiquing every step of the way, I probably would have, guys. I probably would have. <laughs> but I'm just curious. Like, so when you got to that landing page, 
that told you more. And when you're considering people of different ethnic groups, different religions, different sexual orientations, whatever the case may be, did it seem like a website that was welcoming and inviting? And like, did it use health literacy concepts to really make it plain for people and comfortable? To yeah, I, I think they did. I think they did. You're totally right. I did go in looking at it as a researcher. What I like, I first clicked on the link because I was just like, you know, how are they going to get 30,000 people to do this study? I just want to see their strategy. Like, what are they doing to convince people? But then it works, apparently, because I, I signed up at the end of the page. But no, the, the website, you know, had a lot of uh, just simple language. It, a lot of it was about the opportunity to make a difference, uh, you know, by participating in this science. There were a lot of photos of many different kinds of people. I remember photos of people who were older, people who were in wheelchairs, people of different racial backgrounds, I think to try to, you know, make people potentially see themselves in the study. And then, you know, of course, once I got to the point of actually being in the study, um, I got to meet with a you know, doctor, with nurses who were uh, working on the study, who answered all my questions. I think that those kinds of things are important for just bringing people in. But, you know, I think that there's still a lot of work that we have to do about really making research inclusive and making sure that people know about these opportunities. Again, I think there were probably a lot of people out there that never even knew that this trial was going on at all or maybe didn't know about the opportunity to participate. And as you said, Instagram and social media is great. But our algorithms feed us different things. And so even though that's intended to reach a wider group, uh, it may not have. And, and so I think that, you know, it's something that we have to do a lot more work on as researchers, you know, to think about how do we reach people where they are and not force them to come to us? Because if we do it that way, we're probably not going to get a very representative sample of everyone. Exactly. And then you were mentioning, so during the process when you were getting your vaccines, you started to experience some side effects. So what were the instructions for you? So they give you this vaccine and then did you have to like take notes at certain uh, intervals or just when you started to have symptoms? Like how much work did you have to do once you were in the study? What, what was that like? Yeah, yeah. So um, yes, there is a, a little bit of data reporting that goes along with the study. So I'll walk you through kind of the process. When I first got there, uh, they went through a process that's called informed consent. And this is something that's required by law for clinical studies such as this. And what informed consent means is that, you know, researchers need to explain fully to potential participants what is going on in the study, the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, and make sure that people are making an informed decision about being in the study. So they went through the informed consent and a whole bunch of uh, a medical screening to make sure that I was healthy and, and able to participate. Uh, they took a number of baseline blood samples to kind of see where things were at baseline. I had to do a COVID test, which was always not the most fun thing to do when they do the, the nose one. But, you know, I did the COVID test. And then uh, from there, they gave me the vaccine and sent me home. And then I had to do for right after I got it a daily log of potential symptoms or side effects. And then after the first week, uh, it was a weekly log of symptoms and side effects. And so I still do that now. And they designed it to be pretty easy. There's an app on my phone where I record that. And then um, there's a, a series of additional study visits where I go in and they draw my blood to look at antibody levels and such following the vaccine. So I actually just did another visit for the study. And uh, those of us who are in the original trial are going to be followed for two years. So I'll keep doing that until next uh, next year. Now, and let me ask this because some might say, wow, that's a lot of work. Now, another two years, like I'm married to this, this study and I'm imagining is, is it for, it's just for people who got the va actual vaccine that have to do the follow-up for two years. Is there incentive yeah. to do that? Or, I mean, how do people not fall yeah. off? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. That's something that we think a lot about as researchers too. How do we retain people in a study? So there are some, some mechanisms in place to try to retain people. So when I go to the study, uh, they always pay me for my time and they pay for my parking. So try to make it easy for people. And there's a small amount of money for each visit, uh, as well as for doing the weekly symptom log that helps incentivize people to do it. Uh, they send a lot of reminders. They'll call me and text me and really want people to stay in so they can get the full data. If people drop out, it can make it really hard to draw good conclusions. One of the interesting things about the, the vaccine studies is uh, there, I happen to be in the group that got the active vaccine, but there is also a placebo group. There's a group of people that were in the study that got nothing. And there kind of is a difficult ethical question. Once we know that a treatment or a vaccine works really well to protect people, is it ethical to ask these other people to stay in the control group and not get that protection, especially when we're in the midst of a pandemic? That That's a really difficult situation. So um, what Pfizer did is, this is also what Moderna and Johnson & Johnson did, was they created a mechanism where people who were in that placebo group could cross over to the active vaccine group if they wanted to and get the vaccine, which of course is the right thing to do. There may be some people who, for various reasons, are willing to stay in the control group for the whole two years, but uh, the science has had to change as the health, what we know about the vaccine and the health implications have changed. So at this point, they're following us. I believe most people are now vaccinated in the study uh, just to look at the long-term effects. And of course, we also have more data now because um, so many people in the general public have gotten it. Okay. And at what point did you learn that, I mean, although you had your suspicions that you did, right? At what point did you learn or did they confirm that, yes, you were in the group that received the actual vaccine? Yeah, I uh, found out in December of 2020. So what they decided to do, because of the ethical issue I was just talking about, they decided to unblind us in stages. So if you were somebody who, in the general public, you were eligible to get the vaccine, then they would unblind you and give you the option. So because I'm a nurse, I was in the first group of people eligible for the vaccine as a healthcare worker. So I was also in the first group to be unblinded. If I hadn't had the vaccine, I would have had the option to get it. But in my case, I did. So I, I was all set. And then six months afterwards, I also had the opportunity to be in the booster trial. So I also um, have had a booster shot. I got that back in April. And that's, of course, some of the data that's now being used to recommend boosters for everyone, which is really wow. great to see. Okay, so you, you get an injection in your arm. You're not sure what you're getting. We're in the middle of a the world pandemic is like just ramping up. And so I know it was probably a, a scary time, scary time if we have protection, scary time if you don't, because we don't really know what we're dealing with fully at this point. When Yes. That when you started to have those symptoms, what was going through your mind? I mean, to be honest with you, I was pretty scared. Like I said, I've never had a reaction to a vaccine before. And even though I had read about the mRNA and, you know, I trusted the study doctors and researchers and really felt like I was as informed as I possibly could be, it's scary to see your body having that kind of reaction. I developed a kind of, I'd say maybe like, you know, some people have a few side effects, some people have a lot. I was one of the people that had a lot. So I had a muscle pain, I had chills, I had a headache. And then the thing that kind of set off my alarm bells was that I also had a fever. I had a very high fever of 104 degrees. Again, we know that that's normal. Some people do have fevers after a vaccine and it's rare, but it does happen. But because it had never happened to me and we're in the context of this new kind of vaccine, uh, it really it really scared me. It made me worry if something had gone wrong and something was happening to me. 
but you know, the, the, when I, um, the morning when I had that fever and I was feeling really concerned, I went back to the research. I actually pulled up the phase one and two clinical trial reports from Pfizer. Look at this participant guys. This is like, this is like an excellent (laughs) research participant, you know, not someone who's I'm just saying, you definitely had your researcher hat on. I love this. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Go yeah, ahead. no, like I said, I'm not like the kind of representative person they probably wanted their trials, but I pulled up their reports because I wanted to see what had happened. I was in the, the stage uh, two and three trial, but there had actually been other trials before me to develop the vaccine. So I looked at those and what I saw was that the majority of people in those earlier trials had also had side effects. And that really gave me reassurance that it was okay and it also brought me back to um, to nursing school when I thought about, you know, what we learn about vaccines, that when we get a vaccine, it activates our immune system. And that's why after a vaccine, sometimes kids and when people get them will have those signs that we also get when we're sick, like having a fever or chills or muscle pain, et cetera. And so it, um, it really helped me work through that fear uh, just to lean into the science and really look at the data and, and what I knew was true. And, you know, again, I turned out to be just fine. Um, I'm so grateful that I got it at that time. And, uh, you know, it was a really, a really helpful experience to be a part of that science. And I think that's also why, you know, when I wrote the article that I, I talked about how it was so important for us as doctors and nurses and healthcare providers to talk to patients about this. We don't always do a good job of this, right? I've given vaccines for a long time. I'm sure you have too. And it's just so easy for us to get really busy and to rush through it and to rush through people's questions and concerns. But with this one in particular, I think it's very important that we help people understand the science. People aren't stupid. You know, they can understand uh, how vaccines work, why they work, why we see our bodies react this way, and how that um, is our bodies, you know, developing protection. And so I, I think it's really important that we, we translate that to people in the public and that they have access to the same science that you and I do as healthcare mm-hmm. providers. Now, as, um, as healthcare providers, it's very important for us as nurses, especially to understand the research. But I have to admit, there's been so much information out there. And then I'm reading these studies. They're not actually like bathroom readings per se. Like they're, like you really have to <laughs> take some time, really focus on the article and, you know, read the data to make sure you understand it. Now, there are a few articles I've had to read twice just to make sure that I understand it. It's very informational, but it can be challenging. So if I, as a healthcare professional, I'm challenged by it, although now, you know, with NBC and me always reporting, I've become comfortable with it. I'm, I'm swimming in it all the time. But for some mm-hmm. of my other colleagues, they don't feel very empowered to talk about the data because they yes. feel, don't feel as confident in its interpretation and just communicating it. How do we fix that? How do we uh, empower more nurses um, and doctors to, to really read the research fully, fully, fully read it? And take the time to explain it to patients because, and also, and I'll say this, some of these doctor's visits are really short. There's not a lot of time yes. to talk. And yes. the big thing that we're saying is talk to your healthcare provider, talk to your healthcare provider. And some of the providers, you know, they're having some yeah. challenges. So what do we do? How do we fix that? Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question, Alice. I, I think it's really important. You bring up a great point. Like if we as healthcare providers and professionals sometimes have a hard time understanding the research, let alone keeping up with all the research that's coming out, how can we expect people in the general public who are busy living their own lives to do the same? It's it's really a big challenge. And I'll say one of the other challenges with COVID is that, you know, one of the, the only bright spots that come out of this pandemic is that there has been so much incredible science. It's just incredible to me that we developed these vaccines and tested them and got them out there so quickly. 
But on the flip side of that, we know that there's also been a lot of bad science. Uh, there's been a lot of falsified studies, false information, a lot of bad reporting of data, and a real proliferation of garbage science, too. And so how do we distinguish those things? I think I have a couple of thoughts. So I, I think the first is that, you know, access to scientific information is still a really big challenge for a lot of doctors and nurses. Often scientific studies are behind paywalls. And uh, if you're a busy, you know, a healthcare provider working in a clinic and you don't work for a big place uh, that's going to pay for you to access research, you may not even be able to get to it at all. So I think that's one. I think that we have to make science more transparent and more open. Often the money that funds these studies that get published in these journals behind paywalls, uh, it's public money. It comes from places like the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation that are really taxpayer funded entities. And I feel strongly that research that's funded publicly should be accessible to the public. And I think that's something that we really have to think about changing. Another piece is that, you know, as scientists, we are often really trained to write in a way that's very technical and very jargony. <laughs> We're taught to be long-winded and to say things in complicated ways. And as you rightly pointed out, busy clinicians and busy people don't have the time uh, to read those things. Frankly, I don't like reading science that's like that. I want the cliff so notes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I think that we have to do exactly that, have cliff notes. I'm seeing a lot more journals now, in addition to requiring scientists to write their technical report, that also require you to write a clinical implications section, or maybe just a summary of key clinical takeaways. And I think that things like that uh, are really, really important. Things that a busy clinician, you know, per flipping through a journal can see the takeaways and the main points from the study without needing to have all the technical knowledge. A lot of journals are also doing a much better job of putting science out on social media uh, and using infographics and visuals to communicate to people. I think all of that is so important. And I also think the work that you do is so important. We need people like doctors and nurses who can do that translation to go and talk to people where they are. Um, and that often is going to be the news. It's going to be social media. It's doing things in communities. I did a couple of um, town halls in LA where I talked to students at a community college. I did a town hall with one of our congressional representatives here in LA. And I think anything like that where we can reach out to people where they are and bring them science really matters. And it matters who the messenger is. People don't always trust politicians. They don't always trust the government. Uh, they don't always trust you know, the CDC and the World Health Organizations. But research really consistently shows that people trust their own doctors and nurses. And so I think that folks like you and others who are willing to go out there and do that translation work from a trusted voice makes a huge difference. I think so too. Now, I want to ask, as we're talking about research, and I don't know if when this became a thing, but I've been seeing a lot of studies that say, oh, this was, this is not peer reviewed. Like there's like, all of a sudden there's all this data out there, but it hasn't been peer reviewed. And so when, when a study, when a study comes out, it's drawing conclusions on its data saying how it's good for this or good for that or whatever it's saying, but it's not been peer reviewed. How should we be approaching that type of data? This is another really interesting kind of a quirk in the science world that's come out because of COVID. So typically, if someone like me does a study and I go to publish it, it takes a really, really, really long time from the time I do the study to the time when it comes out a journal. And that's because it has to go through a process called peer review, which is where other scientists will really rigorously evaluate the work. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll give comments and require revisions to make sure that the science is really, really good. And that vetting process is how we make sure that there's good quality science. 
the quality process is important, but the downside of it is that it takes a really long time. And there's this big lag between science and results that we have, and then their ability to get out there in the world. In healthcare, I'm always so haunted by this. Research has shown that from the time something is published in a journal to the time it actually changes healthcare on the ground, on average, it takes 17 years. And when I think about that, that there's solutions out there to the problems we face that are just sitting in journals or sitting in peer review that we can't access, that's really troubling because there's a lot of things out there that we need science solutions to. So the time is a problem. And in, in, in COVID, uh, when people were starting to do research and we knew that we needed more rapid turnaround science, a lot of people started publishing preprints, which means that before the articles go through peer review, um, they're posted online so that people can look at the results and other scientists can kind of read them for themselves and see the conclusions and then know that they might be subject to change. I think that that preprint process is really great for scientists uh, because for people that are able to kind of evaluate, you know, the methods and the data for themselves, it's helpful to know what's coming down the pipeline. The trouble is when people who may not be scientists start to see those preprints, it can lead to wrong conclusions. And there have been some preprints, like I said, in studies that have been falsified and that have been wrong and that have turned out to not be so good. And so I think it's a great mechanism for scientists uh, I think that when uh, people who may not be scientists look at those things, it's just important to, to know that it hasn't been vetted. And again, to rely on those folks who can translate it for you, because not all of it uh, is good. I totally agree, because I, I, I've had several instances where different reporters have asked me different questions about, you know, what are my thoughts or takeaways on this study? And I'm just like, well, there's only 15 people here. I don't know what you want. Like, I, I don't believe that right. they, I can tell you about this, but I don't know that it's generalizable to the greater, you know, to the greater population. So, but that someone like myself who's familiar with research and can, you know, ten, can call that out. It's when it gets in the hands of the lay public, they don't necessarily look to see how many, you know, how, what was the sample size? They're just saying, oh my gosh, a hundred percent, 90 percent of people who participated in this study X, Y, and Z. And so I think those sound bites travel a lot faster, especially with social media, everything goes viral. But without yeah. having that trained eye, that health professional, that researcher who can really scrutinize the data to make interpretations about how this is clinically applicable to the real life scenario, that may be one of the reasons why we also have so much misinformation and disinformation out there. People are just a absolutely. pulling numbers out of their hats and drawing conclusions, which can be very dangerous. And then something else I wanted to get into as we're talking about the studies and the participants, um, you referenced that we don't have as many studies on women, people of color, and for young children. How can we change that? How do we move the needle so that now when we do research moving forward, that we really get a sample that's representative and reflective of the people who are going to actually benefit from said treatment or said therapy? Yeah, I, I love this question. I, I think it's, uh, like I said, a direction that's really needed for research. So I think some of the change has to be structural. And that means that funding agencies that pay for research have to require people to do it. And fortunately, we've seen a lot of that happen. Today, when you submit a grant and you want to get money to do a study from the National Institutes of Health, uh, you have to explain how you're going to include women, how you're going to include children, and how you're going to include people of color. And if you're not, you have to justify a very good reason why. I think that's really important that they are now making sure that researchers articulate that and are thoughtful about inclusion right from the very beginning when they start a study. So I think that's one thing. 
I think another piece is that, you know, even if we do that, uh, there's still the piece about how we actually get people to want to participate in our studies. I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, there, there's a long history in biomedicine and in research of people and, and scientists treating people inappropriately in research and leaving people feeling used. That's true for individual people, people who might be in studies and, you know, have an intervention or a treatment for a study, but then when the study ends, they lose it and, and they don't know how to move forward. But there's also a phenomenon that happens at a community level where sometimes researchers will tend to go to the same kinds of vulnerable communities for research and for data, but those communities will never actually see the benefit of that research. We see that happen a lot in global research uh, where, you know, Western scientists will go into countries in the global South and they'll do their studies and they'll collect their data and then they'll leave and they won't really think much about the people they left behind. But we also do it here in the U.S. Uh, to be totally honest with you, a lot of big universities like where I work, UCLA and other places have a very troubled relationship with the communities that they're a part of because we have not always done a good job of being good neighbors and really looking out for people and, and really thinking about how is our research going to benefit these people, not just how do we take their data. So a lot of people who, who recognize these problems and want to do a better job of operationalizing equity in their research are using approaches where rather than, you know, us, the researchers up here studying you, the subjects down here, we're really flipping that and saying, people that we are studying, we want you on the research team with us. We're going to have patients, we're going to have community members sitting here at the research table with us, helping us design the studies, write the grants, write the papers, interpret the findings, and think about how we use them. And we're going to give you an equal voice to us, the scientists, because that experiential knowledge and lived experience that you have as a patient with a certain condition or a member of this community, we're going to value that as much as we value like the knowledge that you or I have on how to design a study. So I think that that model, um, it's often called community-based participatory research or patient, uh, patient engagement and research. I think that those approaches are so important, and I'd love to see more incentives for scientists to use those models and, and to have training to know how to do it in an equitable way so that it's not just like a performative thing that we do or you know a box that we check, but something that we really take to heart and do right from the get-go when we're doing research. Oh, I love that. I, I really like that. I hope I, we see a lot more of that. Now, as a nurse or even as someone as in a general public, you know, listening to your story, Let's, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm now inspired to participate in research, do my part, and not necessarily just with COVID, but maybe it's with heart disease or maybe it's something else that's going on. Where do we even go to find out what research project needs participants or where might I be able to fit in? How, where do I go to find out about those things? Yeah. So one great place that you can go is to universities around you. A lot of science does happen at universities. So whatever area you might be listing in, if you live near any large uh, state university or private university, uh, odds are that they're doing research and they almost always have a website for people who want to participate in clinical trials to sign up. Even if you don't have a chronic condition, we often need healthy volunteers uh, who can be a part of the control group. And so even if you don't have something, if you're interested in getting involved in research, would definitely encourage you to check out opportunities at the nearest university to you. You can also look on the website for the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, for opportunities for funded research to see what's out there. Beyond being a participant in research, if you're interested in the kind of thing I described, being like a partner on the research team, there are a couple of different ways that you can think about getting involved. So one is that um, all studies have to go through an ethical review before they start. 
And almost all universities and, and boards that review those studies are comprised of scientists, but they also always have seats for patients and community members. You could consider getting involved in the ethical review board at, at a university near you. They're looking for people who want to do this kind of work uh, to get to see and have a voice in what studies get approved and how we make sure that they're ethical. And then also, you know, you can, when you do look at opportunities for research, I would keep an eye out for rules like what I described to maybe be on patient advisory board or community advisory board or to have a role where you're involved in the research. Another way you can get involved, and this is how I've connected with a lot of, of patients in my own research, is if you are in a study and you're interested in how the findings are used or what can happen, reach out to the investigator. Um, tell them, hey, I, I participated in your study and I want to learn more about what's going to happen with these findings. Is there any role for me? Or could we talk to learn more about where things are at and what you're going to do with the research? I've had many, many people do that with studies that I've been running, and then they've come onto my studies to be co-authors on publications or to advise our next study. And if you reach out, um, a lot of scientists are eager to talk about their work. So I think that's yeah. another a path to getting involved. Oh, wow. These are some really great suggestions. I have to admit, when we when we started the the show, I was I was really more interested in hearing your story. Now I think I'm feeling a little inspired to participate in someone's research. So I, I'm going to have to call yeah, my, no, it's, my it's local great. university. There's a lot out there. And, and you know, uh, another, if people need one more menu, uh, I got in the Pfizer trial because of social media. A lot of people are recruiting for studies on social media. So that's another, if you go to, you know, Twitter, to Instagram, you can often find uh, postings of studies that you can participate in. So lots of ways to do it. And, you know, I think that being involved in science and creating, you know, new information, answering questions that we don't have the answer to, to me, is just so exciting. And I want to do it again, you know, even though um, I'm doing doing that work of, of running studies myself, I definitely, this was a very positive experience and I, I'm looking for opportunities to do it again myself. <laughs> Oh, that's so good to hear. So one, guys, we are so proud of her because she's a nurse and she's a researcher and doing great things. But also thank you for your service, for participating in the trial. So that information is helping millions of people around the world, you know, when it comes to making decisions about getting the vaccine. So guys, we all want this research. We all want to know, you know, is it safe? Is this going to work? What are the side effects? But Part of it is, I think we also have a responsibility to participate in it as well. And as nurses and health professionals, also being able to understand that data so we can communicate it to our patients to help that guide, help them guide their decisions for the choices that they're going to make when it comes to their healthcare choices. So Dr. Trice, thank you so much for all of this wonderful information. And I have to say, all of these answers just flowed off your tongue so naturally. Like I can tell <laughs> you genuinely like love, love this research. And it's so great because- some of the audience that's listening to the podcast, they're nurses or they're nursing students. And I I know, I know some of y'all are cringing like research. Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> no, look, look how, look how, look at the smile on her face. Like we've had such a wonderful conversation based on research. I think some of times it's when you're learning something new, the building blocks of learning something new are often challenging and can be difficult at times. But once you've learned it, guys, look at this, look at all of the work that she's done, the work that she's doing and how easy she was able to explain things to us. Not like our research some of our research instructors, but yeah, no, thanks, you should have been my research. I wish you were my nursing research instructor. Well, I was going to say, I know we're probably uh, running close to the end of our time here, but I will just say, I think that we have a lot of work to do in how we educate doctors and nurses about research. Because when I took a research class as a nursing student, 
I hated it. I thought it was super dull. Unfortunately, I, I got, you know, connected with research through other means. But um, I think that we could also use a lot of innovation in how we teach nurses and, and doctors about science so that they know that it's a really exciting career path. Uh, and it's not just uh, reading these dry journal articles all day. Exactly. We're all signing up for your section of nursing research. So when, when it gets posted, prepare, be prepared for that wait list to happen. No, it's Come, I'll take the class. It's, uh, it's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate your expertise, the knowledge that you shared. And, you know, it was a delightful conversation. You didn't make it boring. I mean, it was really helpful. And if anything, it was very inspiring to myself. And I'm sure you inspired many people who are listening, nurses, physicians, and just general public who are listening because you made it plain for us. And that's really what we appreciate. So very taking very complex things and breaking it down in a digestible way that I can apply the information super easy. So thank yeah. you so much for your time. Now, before, before we let you go, uh, where can people follow you or learn more about the things that you're working on? Cause you know, many people like to keep tabs on the guests because they were so awesome. They want to know like, what else is she working on? What else, you know, where else can I listen to her? What else can I read of hers? Like, is there anything coming yeah. down the pipeline for you that you can share please? Sure, sure. Well, so um, I'm probably most accessible on Twitter. I'm at Kristen R. Choi. You can also, if you Google my name, um, it's my webpage at UCLA. Uh, but I, I uh, you know, I was talking about how it's so important that we do that work of translating science. I really try to put that into practice. So when I have new studies coming out, I always try to tweet about them, uh, to make them plain language, to tweet those clinical takeaways and, and really distill them down. So certainly anyone who's interested in that work, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, as we talked about at the very beginning, even though we did get into this, most of my research is on the mental health space, but I do have a couple of really interesting studies on COVID vaccines, on uptake among nurses, and some of the reasons why people are declining vaccines coming out here soon. So if you're interested in those things, feel free to follow me on Twitter. Uh, my email address is on uh, my webpage. And yeah, hope, hope people will uh, think about participating in research and uh, and staying involved because I think it really can be uh, quite fun and exciting. Thank you so much. I thank you and Nurse.org. Thanks you and our listeners. Thank you so much. And guys, if you haven't already, please make sure to head on over to Nurse.org. You'll be able, there'll be an article as well as you can catch the replay and some and the video of this interview. Make sure you share it with your friends and your colleague and give it, send it to your nursing research instructor. Give Drop them a hint. Okay, guys? Um, but I'm Nurse Alice. It's always a pleasure to chat with you guys. Until next time, make good choices, be kind to one another, and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.